Well, good evening. I have a question for you. How many of you are planners? You got your, mm, I thought probably a lot of you would be. You've got your daily calendar all filled out to the hour, right? You know exactly where you're going. No, good, good. And <laughs> you know exactly what you're doing at all times of the day, and you stick with the plan, right? My husband is one of you. He loves a plan. The first question he asks himself every morning is, what's the plan? And depending on the day, he really doesn't care what the plan is as long as there is one. Because he likes to know what to expect, and he likes his life to work out in an orderly way. And a lot of you are just nodding like this. I, I'm not so much like that, really. My calendar is filled out in pencil. But anyway, I appreciate a good plan because I realize that this keeps life from getting too chaotic, right? I mean, imagine getting in your car without a plan for knowing where you want to wind up. I have to admit, I fantasize about doing that sometimes. <laughs> Who's with me? Are you with me? <laughs> well, fortunately for all of us, we have a very good God who has a very good plan backed by some very good promises. And we can trust him because he is faithful. As Amy walked us through Genesis 1 to 11 last week, we learned that God has a plan. He created everything that there is with beauty and intention. And he blessed all of it so that it could be fruitful and, and um, so that it could flourish under the watchful and creative care of his image bearers. But as we know, Adam and Eve deviated from that plan. They plunged the world into sin and ruin, and it just got worse and worse as time went on. But God's plan didn't change. It just took a different turn in Genesis 12. God initiated at that point his plan to redeem and to restore all that was broken at the fall. And he began with one man named Abram. And what I love about Abram's story is that it's told as what it was. It was a journey. It was a literal journey from Ur to Canaan with a little side trip up to Haran. But it was also a spiritual journey of faith. Um, and it's a paradigm for our own journey of faith. Genesis 12 to 16, which was our lesson this week, are, they are some of the most crucial chapters in all the Bible. And without them, we can't really make sense of the rest of it. They cover 11 years of Abram's life, and they aren't sugar-coated, are they? The whole story is driven by Abram's struggle to trust God in the face of some pretty significant challenges. Faith, like life, is a journey, not just a one-time decision. So this evening, I want you all to pretend that we are on a tour bus, and we're going to retrace Abram's journey. And we're going to be making five stops along the way, and we're going to be learning something about God and something about ourselves and life through Abram's eyes at each stopping point. So it's a lot of territory to cover, but hang with me. I've got a plan, and I will do my best to guide us through. So, all aboard? All right, let's go. Our first stop I'm calling Origination Station because it is the place of Abram's first calling by God at the age of 75 to join him on a whole new journey of life and faith, and I just love that. The origination point was his birthplace in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was southern Mesopotamia, 
a region we affectionately known as Babylon. That's where God called this man Abram, and he said to him, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Now, let's just stop and observe for a moment that God's call required a lot of faith, didn't it? It always does. But it was a really big ask of Abram to leave everything behind. His family of origin, his homeland, his livelihood, everything about his life that gave him identity and a sense of security and and social standing even, even his old religion, which was probably pagan, polytheistic, And some of you, some of us, or your parents, grandparents, know exactly what that's like to leave a place that that you've known your whole life, your old life, and to, to uproot and go somewhere and try to make a new life in a new culture. My husband's um, family immigrated here from Ireland back in the 30s. Um, They came with, with such hope and such promise, but life was harder than they expected, and they were really homesick. And so after a few months, all of them went back. They went back to the old country. They went back to their old lives, all of them except Andy's dad, Eric. Eric stayed behind because a new friend that he made in America introduced him to Jesus Christ. And he just somehow felt that God had something for him here, even though he didn't know exactly what it was. So the day came when at the age of 18, Eric had to stand on a dock and wave goodbye to his parents, his two brothers, and his sister. And I can't even imagine what that moment was like for him. Because all he had was Jesus and just an inkling of a promise. Nothing like what Abram had, a clear, audible call, but it was enough to keep him going. And it kind of reminds me of when Jesus called his first disciples because the Gospels tell us that they left everything to follow Jesus. And, of course, they had no idea where that would ultimately lead them, did they? But they trusted the one who called them. And that's what Abram did. And that's what we do. Now, it really helped that Abram's call came with pretty amazing promises, right? So let's read what they are. Genesis 12, 2 and 3. God said, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who, cur- who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All right, quick. What is the one word that is used five times? Well, it's a variation of a word. <laughs> it's used five times in two verses that describes what God's intention is for Abram. Bless, yes, blessing, blessing. And um, all the I will statements reflect God's determination. This is what he's going to do for Abram. He's going to bless him, and not just him, but all the peoples of the world will be blessed through him, which, of course, was a foreshadowing of, of Jesus' blessing to the world. Now, I don't know what your view of God is today, But what God is revealing to us about himself through Abram's eyes is that he is good and he has promised to do good for his people. 2,000 years after Abram's life, the Apostle Paul wrote these words that we know and love in Romans 8. He wrote, we know 
We all know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And so, therefore, we too can trust God when we can't exactly see where he's leading us all the time. Now, what did Abram's trust in God look like at this point? Well, verse 4 tells us, So, Abram left, as the Lord told him, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Trust looked like obedience in this instance. All Abram had to do to obtain God's blessings was to take that first step. And you may be in a place right now in your life where you sense God is moving you forward in some way. But it's a little bit scary because you can't quite see where it's all going to end and how it's all going to work out. And God just may be whispering to you, just trust me. Take that first step. Will you trust him? You know, it wasn't until Abram actually arrived in Canaan that his faith became sight. God appeared to him in some form. We don't know, but he said, this is it, Abram. This is the land I've been telling you about. This is the land I'm promising to give you and to your descendants forever. And so Abram built an altar there to symbolize that he was trusting God to keep his promise. So, so far... So good. Abram's doing great in the faith department. But now we come to the next stop along the journey, and I'm calling it Setback Station because this is where the challenges come in and where Abram's faith is tested. He is finally where he's supposed to be, right? He's in the land, but there's a famine in the land. So he goes down to Egypt, and there's a Pharaoh in the land. What's up with that? Have you ever been there where you thought you were right where God wanted you to be and bam, everything went south? I think a lot of us started following Jesus thinking that life would go smoothly for us because we did. But it hasn't. It's been hard. And we're surprised with the contradiction. But you know, paradox and doubt are part of this journey because faith cannot exist in a vacuum. We have to hold these two realities together all the time. Life is hard in a broken world, and God is faithful. Faith means relentlessly trusting him with these realities as they play out over time. It turns out that famines were common in the land of Canaan, and pharaohs, wicked pharaohs, were common in the land of Egypt, you might remember. God didn't spare Abram hardship in the land of promise. He used it for good to teach Abram to trust him in ever-deepening ways, just like he does with us. Isn't it true that we learn more about God and more about ourselves and more about life and how to live it through the trials that we go through? More than when life is smooth. But all too often, we, like Abram, succumb to fear and doubt. Instead of trusting God with the famine and the Pharaoh, Abram went into self-protection mode. Sarai, tell everyone you are my sister so that my life will be spared and so that life will go well for me. Well, what about Sarah's life? 
what about her well-being? Did Abram not think that God could handle a famine and a Pharaoh without making his wife a human shield? (laughs) Did Abram not think that Sarah was part of the promise and the plan? I'm sorry, y'all. I just get really mad right now. (laughs) I just don't like this. (laughs) This is awful. And God is faithful. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) But sure enough, because it could, Pharaoh took Sarah into his palace as his wife. And he enriched Abram because of her. Yet God was faithful where Abram was not. Verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. And when Pharaoh understood what was going on, he got really ticked off at Abram, you can imagine. (laughs) Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. (laughs) Sounds like Sarah's just a piece of property to be given and taken at will, right? Well, you know what? She was. She was. Women, wives, and daughters were considered property back then. Doesn't mean they weren't loved on some level, but their only value really consisted in their ability to produce an heir. And so far, Sarah has been a disappointment in that arena. I'm going to talk more about Sarah at our last stop because I know we have lots of feelings about this, but we need to move on because we're not out of chapter 12 yet, okay? (laughs) Genesis 12 ends with Pharaoh kicking Abram out of Egypt. And so Abram goes back to Canaan with his tail between his legs, as he should. Our next stop takes us to Conflict Junction. Conflict junction in Genesis 13 and 14 because we've got two very significant conflicts going on. And the first one is a family conflict. Don't you just love those? Those are the worst, aren't they? It seems that Abram and Lot had become very wealthy from their time in Egypt. They'd gotten a lot of livestock and so forth. And the herdsmen were starting to quarrel with each other because the land wasn't um, big enough to hold all of them. And there seems to be some tension between Abram and Lot as well. And so in order to make peace, um, Abram realizes there needs to be some separation. Sometimes that happens. We need to draw boundaries and there needs to be some separation when there's conflict. And so Abram selflessly and magnanimously offered Lot his choice of the whole land, even though God had given it all to Abram. And I think this was an act of faith on Abram's part. He could have claimed his rights based on God's promises and sent Lot packing back to Haran. But I just kind of think that maybe getting out of Egypt, chastened but alive and with Sarah at his side because God had intervened for her, I think that taught him a lesson about trusting God rather than himself. And so trust for Abram that day looked like generosity rather than self-protection. So Lot surveyed the whole land, and he decided to take the best part of it for himself, even though it took him to the outskirts of a really bad neighborhood, so to speak, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah which already had a very vile reputation. Well, after Lot left, Abram told God, God told Abram to lift up his eyes and to look north, south, east, and west. 
all that he could see would be his forever. Because you see, God's plans hadn't changed. He just gave back everything Abram had given away. Now remember, there's still no children. Sarah is still infertile. But guess what Abram saw when he looked north, south, east, and west? He saw a lot of dust. Because you know where he is? He's in the Negev. You might remember that word from your reading. The Negev is the southernmost part of Canaan. And it is dry and it is hot and it is really dusty. It's desert-like. But God used that as a visual aid for Abram. He says in Genesis 13, 17, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram got up and went. He traversed the land, and he finally settled a little farther north in a city called Hebron, where he built another altar to the Lord. So at this point in his journey, he's in the land, and he has peace at home finally, but now there's a war going on just north of him where his family lot lives. And isn't that just how it is in a broken world sometimes? You put out one fire over here and another fire pops up over there. Well, it turns out that Lot and his whole family had been captured in that war because at some point Lot decided to move his family into Sodom where the king of that city had allied himself with four other kings, and they had rebelled against their overlords from the east. And you know the story. Abram courageously mustered his, his uh, family and his, his allies, and they went after those kings, and they um, rescued Lot's family and all the other people and all the possessions that had been captured. Well, what happens next is one of the mo- great mysteries of the Bible. When Abram returns from his great victory, two kings came out to meet him. And I can't imagine what great respect they must have had for this nomadic herdsman, not even a Canaanite, who had just conquered and plundered four powerful kings. They must have wondered, who is this man and what makes him tick? The king of Sodom apparently assumed that as the victor, Abram would have taken all the plunder for himself, and so the king just asked for his own people back. But Abram raised his hand and said, I will not take a thing from your city because I don't want anyone to say that the king of Sodom made me rich. He wanted credit to go somewhere else. And so then we have the mysterious king, Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness, and his title, the king of Salem, means the king of peace. And this king is also a priest because he comes out with the bread and the wine. And in the name of El Elyon, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, he pronounces a blessing on Abram, and he gives God the credit for Abram's great victory. This Melchizedek in many ways foreshadows Christ the Messiah. And in fact, Psalm 110 and the writer of the book of Hebrews affirms that, and Hebrews addresses it at length. Some people think that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ. But whoever he was, Abram responded by giving him a tenth of everything that he had. 
as a tangible way of acknowledging his allegiance to El Elyon, God Most High, the source of all of life and the source of all Abram's blessings and his victory. And that tithe, that tenth, would serve as, as an example to Israel and to all of God's people in the future, right? It's why we as Christians give a portion of our income regularly to God, not because God needs it, but because we do it for the same reason Abraham did. It's an acknowledgement of our trust and our allegiance in the one true king. Well, y'all, it's time to get back on the bus and journey with Abram back to Hebron. That's our fourth stop, and I'm calling it the place of confession and covenant. Confession and covenant. We don't really know how much time has passed um, up to now, but the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision at night, and he says to him in Genesis 15:1, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Now, I'm not sure why Abram's afraid at this point in his journey. Um, maybe he's afraid of retaliation from those, those kings that he just defeated and plundered, but I don't think so. I think he's having a crisis of faith. Yes, I know God had just given him a great victory. But when he lays in bed at night and thinks about his life and all of God's promises to him, those promises must have seemed very far away and very far-fetched. I mean, think about it. He's been in the land for a good while now, but he doesn't own an inch of it. And he has no children. And in fact, all he's had is trouble. I think he's having an Eve moment. <laughs> Did God really say I was going to be a great nation with descendants too many to count and that I would be a blessing to the world? Or was that just all a delusion and I've been a fool? I kind of picture Abram losing it a little bit here. It seems, seems frustrated when he goes, Oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me as I still remain childless? You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. But God replied, he said, no, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And God took him outside and he said, look at the stars in the heavens and count them, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I've lost count at how many times God has made this promise to him. But verse 6 in Genesis 15 says, Abram believed God, believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is a def defining climactic moment in Abram's life. The Apostle Paul comments on this moment in Romans 4.18 when he wrote, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, So shall your offspring be. And you can just hear the struggle in those words. Against all hope, against all odds, against all the evidence, Abram believed that God would be faithful to his promises. And something happened in that moment of silent confession. God considered Abram a righteous man. Not a perfect man, but a man in right standing with God because of his faith. The word righteousness carries many nuances in the Bible. Sometimes it means moral uprightness and integrity. But in this case, 
It is something that God has, righteousness, and he gives to Abram. He credits it to Abram. It's a gift. We call it grace. This episode in Abram's journey is the basis for Paul's New Testament teaching in Romans 4 where he's writing to a mixed um, congregation of Jewish and Gentile Christians who were arguing about how a person becomes right with God. And the Jews were telling the Gentiles, well, you've got to follow all the laws of Moses. But Paul said this in Romans 4, 1 to 5. He said, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation, nation. <laughs> What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And then Paul gives an illustration. He says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And, of course, Paul was referring to the forgiveness that we have because of the work of Jesus on the cross. His death on our behalf makes us right with God when we trust him. I know many people labor under the terrible burden that God has this heavenly ledger, and on that ledger are all their sins, and on the other side of the ledger are all the things they've got to do to clear the other side. And they hope that it all balances out in the end. And I just wonder if that describes any of you this morning. Have you ever viewed, viewed God and salvation in that way? The reality is we can never clear the ledger ourselves. That's why Jesus came. He has promised to forgive our sins when we put our trust in him. He's the one who clears the ledger, and we are made right with God. I wonder if you've ever had a de defining moment like Abram had, a moment where you quit trusting yourself, you quit trusting, um, trying to understand and figure everything out, and you've placed your full faith and confidence in God's goodness and his faithfulness to make you right with him in Christ. If you haven't, I would invite you to spend a little more time at this stop. And just in the quietness of your own heart, think about what Abram had learned about God and how to be right with him. And maybe you would want to make a silent confession in your own heart similar to his. But I know that many of us made that commitment a long time ago. And yet, if you've lived long enough, you know that we have defining moments in our lives, don't we? We have these crisis points where life is awful over here, and what are we going to believe about God? And I think God would invite us at this moment, too, if that's where you are um, in your life right now. You're in a sort of a crisis of faith moment. And God is saying, I know you struggle. I know life is hard. I am here. I will sit with you until you know that you know that you know that you believe that you are trusting in me. Well, what followed Abram's confession of faith was a rather strange but important ceremony that formalized God's promises to him, and it's called a covenant. As you know, a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties that, that creates a relationship between the two parties. What is so unique about this one 
that's unlike any other covenant um, process known in the ancient world is that God makes a covenant. And it's unilateral and it's unconditional. And it is forever to Abram and his descendants. God is binding himself to them through this covenant. And the significance of it is very hard to overstate. It shows us that God is good and that he is determined to bless his people no matter what. And he does the work on our behalf. God is the one who passed through the blood while Abram was asleep over there. God does the work. Abram's part was to believe. And, you know, God kept his covenant with Abraham. Abraham's name is great, is it not? And he has descendants more numerous than can be counted, both biologically and spiritually through Jesus. As Christians from all generations are partakers in this promise. Actually, we are partakers in the new covenant that Jesus brought through his blood where he did the work and our part is to trust. Do we? Yeah, we do. Well, we've got one more stop on our tour, y'all. I'm calling it the naming station because here in Genesis 16, we learn more about God from something that he names someone and that someone names him. We've come back to Sarai and we meet Hagar because this isn't just Abram's story. The problem is God hasn't spoken to or about Sarai and Hagar yet, and so they haven't felt like they're part of the story. All Sarai knows, assuming Abram told her, is that Abram would have a son from his body. He hadn't said anything about hers. And so Sarah doesn't feel like she matters to God. She feels cursed rather than blessed because that's how ancient people saw barren women as, as cursed. And, and their law even allowed for the husband to take a concubine, which was a slave wife, in order to produce an heir. And the primary wife could even initiate it, as Sarai did, apparently thinking that it was her job to provide Abram with a son that God had promised. And that was the only way she knew to do it. And so Sarai takes Hagar and gives her to Abram like a piece of property. Y'all, this is so messed up. I just hate it. <laughs> but that was their reality in that broken world. But no matter where in the world people are, no matter what culture, God is calling out a people to himself to bless, to trust him. Well, Abram seems excruciatingly passive in his household, doesn't he? I mean, he agreed with Sarai's plan when he shouldn't have. He didn't defend Sarai when Hagar was mean to her. He didn't defend Hagar when Sarai mistreated her. And so one day, Hagar flew the coop. She just, she ran away. And she, the only place she had to go was the desert. But I just love what God did for her and, and why he did it and how. It says that God sent his angel to find her. I love that. And then God, through the angel, made Hagar the same promise he made to Abram. He said, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Sound familiar? You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. The name Ishmael means God hears. 
And I love to imagine every time Hagar would call her little son in for dinner one day, she would be reminded that, oh, yeah, God hears the cries of the voiceless. And not only that, but Hagar, the only person in the Bible to name God, names him El Roy, the God who sees me. God sees the invisible, the marginalized, the used and abused. Hagar went back and she must have told her story to everyone who would listen because Moses explains that the well at that site where that happened was still there hundreds of years later. Remember, Moses is writing hundreds of years after Abram's life and he says the well is still there so that thirsty travelers can go to the well of the God who sees me. A few days ago, I was at a funeral and a young woman was talking about her grandmother about how her grandmother had made her feel seen. And she said, that's the greatest gift you can give someone, is to make them feel seen. And that's the gift God gave Hagar, and he gives us too. Spoiler alert, God kept his promise to Hagar. She became the queen mother of a very great nation. But that's a story for another day. Sorry. (laughs) Our tour is over. I hope you enjoyed it. I just want to close by observing that every life is a journey of ups and downs, fits and starts, highways and detours, promises made and sometimes broken. But the one constant is the faithfulness of God, and that must be our North Star. We have a good God who has a good plan, backed by really good promises to bless his people. The only thing he asks of us is that we trust him. So wherever you are on your journey, I want you to remember that, yes, life is hard and God is faithful. You can trust God when you can't see where you're going. You can trust God when your circumstances seem impossible. You can trust God when you're scared. You can trust God when you fail. You can trust God when you feel invisible or voiceless or unworthy. You can trust God every step of the way you can because he's faithful. Will you? Trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm just so grateful that you have preserved the story of Abram, that you have given us your word and that we can study it and we can learn from it. Lord, we thank you that um, you do not call us on a journey and leave us alone, that you are with us every step of the way. Lord, I ask that you would help us to trust you no matter what because you are faithful and you are good. And we thank you in Jesus' name.